welcome to Beyond Blathers, the podcast where we dive deeper into the insects, fish, and fossils you can find in Animal Crossing New Horizons. I'm Sophia Osborne. And I'm Olivia DeBercier. And if you want to support the show, join our Patreon to receive a monthly sticker and print in the mail from Olivia. You can find us at patreon.com slash beyondblathers. So this week, we're so excited to be joined by returning guest Adele Pentland. Adele is an amazing paleontologist and host of the new podcast, Pals and Paleo, which we really can't recommend enough. Last time we had Adele on was exactly 100 episodes ago to talk about Amber, and we just had such a fun time learning about paleontology and Amber and just chatting. This time, Adele is going to tell us about Pteranodon, and thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Adele. I've been listening to your podcast, and it's been so fun. The most recent one I listened to was the Pharaoh Draco one, and I love hearing your stories about being in the field and the whole discovery process and hearing from your colleagues, too. It was just such a good show, and it made me feel like so like warm and fuzzy inside about science and collaboration. So I definitely recommend everyone listens to it. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me back on. I'm so pumped to be talking about pterosaurs and this incredibly iconic pterosaur, Pteranodon. I feel like it's, yeah, one of the most recognizable pterosaurs, or it's like the pterosaur in popular culture. Yeah, definitely. And we wanted to save it for you just because we really associate you with pterosaurs. And I also, yeah, love the podcast. And as the person who produces this podcast, I, I love how like fun the production is on it. Like the music is so fun and just like the vibe. It's just a very good vibe. It's not like a, a stuffy science podcast at all. It is a very fun time. Oh, thank you. Yeah, our like my guy who helps produce at the moment also sang the theme song for it and he's Canadian so of course like the vibe is just like warm fuzzies like inclusive happy peppy yeah it's um it's been a lot of fun so far thank you so much for all the kind words and of course I'm wearing your your pterosaur earrings these are the pharaoh draco ones right yeah yeah based on yeah boy. so Adele also makes jewelry and it's fantastic every time I wear these I get compliments like consistently and I have to be like oh they're dolls they're amazing (laughs) a real paleontologist made them yeah and those are based off the pterosaur that I named in 2019 so So cool cool. I'm sure we're probably gonna talk about that but do you want to talk a little bit just like about yourself for our listeners introduce yourself and and what exactly you do yeah so As you mentioned before, um, I now host my own podcast called Pals and Paleo, and we're trying to really focus on shining a spotlight on fossils that people don't necessarily know. I'm Australian as well, so there's been like a heavy emphasis on some of the Australian fossils that we have here. I'm currently also a PhD candidate at Curtin University, so I think the last time I was on the podcast, I was at Swinburne University of Technology. I've moved to unis now, not because of drama or anything. I didn't fall out with my supervisors or anything crazy. And my project is still the same. It's just that one of my supervisors got a contract with another university and I then followed him. So yeah, I'm now going to uni at Curtin University in Western Australia. But as always, like I'm still based in 
Queensland, which is another state in Australia, and I live in the outback and still help run a massive, we call it a sheep and cattle station. I think out there it's called like a ranch or something. So yeah, just doing that, working on pterosaurs. I've been lucky to be on like a few papers since the last time that I was on, which we can talk about maybe like a little bit later on. But one of the last papers that came out was... I think it was a couple months ago now, and it was on some new old pterosaur bones from Australia. So they're the geologically oldest pterosaur bones that have been reported so far from Australia, and they're from Victoria. So yeah, one of them was also the first juvenile pterosaur that we found in Australia. So it's an itty bitty tiny little wing bone. Um, but yeah, and then I'll I'll probably finish my PhD in maybe like another two years time because I study part time as well. So, yeah, in case everyone's like, wait, why is she taking so long with her PhD? It's by choice. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. I mean, PhDs, they take forever anyway. So it's kind of nice. You get to take your time through it and appreciate the dinosaurs. I mean, how did you know it was like because you said it it was a tiny little bone. Mm -hmm. How did you know it was pterosaur? Oh, so it was kind of flattened so it was it was still kind of 3d but it had basically been squished and the fact that it was able to sort of like flatten the way it did it was either yeah a bird bone because birds lived at the same time as pterosaurs as well or it was a pterosaur bone and yeah just based on the shape of it we identified it as a pterosaur wing bone and it's only about oh I think it's like off the top of my head, maybe like 10 or so centimeters, maybe even smaller than that. But in the other specimens that I've seen, that bone's normally like 23, 24 centimeters, like from top to bottom. So it, it's quite a lot smaller. That's so cool. I'm yeah, I'm so excited to get into it. I feel like there's so much to talk about. But before we fully get into it. Let's see what Blathers has to say about the pteranodon. So if you bring a pteranodon fossil to Blathers, he'll say, the mighty pteranodon, among the very largest animals ever to fly, they were role models to us all. With a wingspan of over 23 feet in some cases, I find it simply stunning that they ever did more than glide. But fly they did, soaring dynamically and dramatically over land and sea. I wish I could have seen it. So cute. <laughs> I'm really with him there. I also wish I could have seen it. That it would amazing. have been equal parts like awe inspiring and terrifying because it's <laughs> yeah like a massive animal. It's not the largest pterosaur, but yeah, it would have been absolutely massive. How big exactly? So yeah, I think Blathers mentions that it's like 23 feet. So that's like what seven meters. I think, like a seven meter wingspan. And that's, yeah, larger than any birds that we have around today. But yeah, you've already done an episode on the biggest pterosaur that ever flew, which is Quetzalcoatlus, Northropi. It's interesting to me that both the pterosaurs they have in Animal Crossing New Horizons, they're both from the late Cretaceous and they both are edentulous. So that means they both have beaks, which look kind of like a stork or a crane but there were pterosaurs that had teeth as well so yeah um I can see why they chose these two they're great pterosaurs but it doesn't necessarily reflect 
how diverse the group is in terms of like the shape of the skull and the wingspans and all that. But yeah. Cool. So, Because like I've even seen photos of some pterosaurs that had like almost a rounded bat-like head and they definitely don't look like how I would imagine those flying reptiles to look out of a book. It's really like I remember seeing the first one and I was like, what is this? Yeah. It's like a flying monkey. Oh, was it maybe like a, a Neurognathus? Yes, that's right. Yes. Yeah. Is that a pterosaur? Um, yes. Yes, it's a pterosaur. Okay. Um, but it, yeah, it's really funny because it has, I don't know, it's kind of like got more of a pug-shaped head in that kind of the features are kind of on one plane almost, but it's definitely sort of like more blocky like blocky's not the right word either but i think you know what i mean as opposed to pteranodon or quetzalcoatlus which kind of has a knife for a face like it's just a very long blade like thing that they're wielding around and anurognathus is also like really like comparatively small as well i should say and sometimes the paleo art has it depicted as yeah kind of like looking like a monkey i've heard it compared to a tarsia before which is another type of primate or they make them look like really owlish, like because they have, they just give them like really big eyes. But they were probably, yeah, chasing insects around, which we don't think Pteranodon did. Oh, that's kind of cool. I mean, they remind me of like the Porgs from Star Wars. <gasps> yes, you know, yes, little- <laughs> 100%. Just very, like, very cute, like big eyes. And then, yeah, kind of that fine fuzz as well. Yeah. Yeah. I did not realize that pterosaurs were so diverse. Do they know how many species do they think there are? Oh, there's over a hundred. I haven't taken the time to like, yeah, work out how many there are, but easily like over a hundred. Wow. That's so cool. And what exactly defines a pterosaur if there's so much diversity? Yeah. So pterosaurs are, I guess, defined and distinguished from dinosaurs pterosaurs aren't dinosaurs I can't I don't think we've mentioned this before they're not they're separate so some people will call pterosaurs flying dinosaurs and I'm using my air quotes here but they're not so they're different because of I believe it's the shape of their pelvis and also their forelimb as well for anyone who isn't really familiar vaguely familiar with the pterosaur so they're flying reptiles they're the first vertebrates that develop powered flight and they modified their arms to become their wings, essentially. So they're kind of a bit like a bat because their wings are made out of a membrane of skin, like a layer of skin that they used to fly around. And yeah, they took to the skies like millions of years before birds had done so. But insects had been around flying about for millions and millions of years before pterosaurs did. So still pretty amazing. Oh, my God. I can't really even begin to imagine what that must have been like these huge like in prehistoric planet I was watching and they had Quetzalcoatlus walking around and it is so alarmingly large <laughs> it's nice to see it like visually yeah, represented Quetzalcoatlus is I think about as big as a male African giraffe when it's walking yeah. around and then I think wow. conservative estimates have its wingspan at like 10 meters but then some other estimates wow. are maybe it's like 12 meters I think 16 meters is like the max I've seen. But even if you just think of 10, 
That's absolutely massive. They are the largest. Quetzalcoatlus is the largest animal to have ever flown on Earth. It's absolutely wild. It was a long time ago that we did that Quetzalcoatlus episode. I think that was one of our first episodes. Yeah. It was our first paleo episode. Yeah. Could you talk a bit more about, like you said, that they have these membranous wings. How did they actually fly? Like, how were they able to get airborne? You know, the pteranodon is also so big. Like, how was it actually flying? Yeah. So one of the things that I really love about what Blathers says when you bring him this fossil is that they are flying. They're not just gliding. And it's interesting that, yeah. Blathers mentions that because in the very first Animal Crossing game that came out on the GameCube, Blathers says that Pteranodon stayed in the air by gliding rather than flapping its wings. And this kind of reflects like the real world like discussion and like a bit of drama going on in the paleontological community. So a while ago now, there was a bit of debate as to whether like large pterosaurs, like Pteranodon and bigger, so Quetzalcoatlus as well, whether they could fly properly or whether they were just gliding and using thermal updrafts or launching themselves off of cliffs. Thermal updrafts or thermals, by the way, are pockets of warm air that rise upwards. So if anyone's played Breath of the Wild or Tears of the Kingdom, the Legend of Zelda games, and you've used a small grass fire to then like launch yourself into the air using a paraglider, that's an example of you using a thermal and like riding it. And I think a lot of the pterosaur gliding flying debate was fueled by the fact that, yeah, it's just so weird to think of something with a wingspan of like seven meters or 23 feet flying through the air. Because as I mentioned before, like we just don't have anything that size. Like it's really, really hard to get your head around it. But yeah, based on sort of the shapes of the bones and studying the shapes of the bones in the pterosaurs and the biomechanics as well. So looking where muscles insert on those bones, like where there's scars, where there's points for muscle to attach, stuff like that. Yeah, they've just sort of worked out that, yeah, these big pterosaurs could fly. And the simplest explanation why is because those bones are just big versions of the smaller pterosaur bones. And we have no reason to think that you know, three meter, four meter pterosaurs couldn't fly. And that's, yeah, something that sort of paleontologist Mark Witten basically says. So yeah, it stands to reason that large pterosaurs could fly just as well, if not slightly different in style compared to sort of smaller species of pterosaur. But yeah, circling back to Animal Crossing, it's really cool to see that they've updated the science surrounding the species. I think Blathers also mentions that pterosaurs flew over land and seas. And we know this because pterosaur fossils are found in geologic formations, which are ancient lakes and ancient rivers, as well as coastal and marine environments. And in fact, Pteranodon is from the Niobrara chalk. And that geologic formation has a lot of fossil fish and sharks, as well as plesiosaurs and mosasaurs, including the famous Tylosaurus, which unfortunately we can't get in Animal Crossing New Horizons, but still, I think a few people might have heard of that one. And occasionally in the Niobrara chalk, you also get dinosaurs like hadrosaurids and types of ankylosaurs can also be found there. But the Niobrara chalk is made up of calcium carbonate and that can only form 
in an ancient ocean. So the ancient ocean that was around during this time, obviously it's gone now because it covered like a good part of North America. It's commonly known as the Western Interior Seaway. Sometimes it's also called the Niobrara Sea and it's split North America into like two halves. So there's Appalachia in the east and Laramidia in the west. So even in the Cretaceous, it's funny to me, even as an Australian, that there's like this east side versus west side discourse going on. <laughs> <laughs> so what age is Pteranodon? Like, when is it from? Yeah. So as I mentioned before, it's from the late Cretaceous, but it wasn't there like right at the end of the late Cretaceous. So the dinosaurs and pterosaurs and marine reptiles went extinct at the end Cretaceous mass extinction event when a 10 kilometer wide, which I believe is six miles, a meteorite that big smacked into what is now Mexico and yeah, wiped out more than 60% of species globally. But thankfully, our friend Pteranodon missed all of that drama. So Pteranodon is from the late Cretaceous, but it's from rocks that are approximately 86 to 80.5 million years ago. So yeah, it missed all of that by like a good almost 20 million years. Wow. And is there any, speaking of drama, is there any drama around the discovery of Pteranodon? We, we just love paleo trauma on this podcast. <laughs> there is so much. So the first fossil of Pteranodon was described by American paleontologist Othniel Charles Marsh. And that makes it part of the Bone Wars. So this is probably like one of the most famous and low-key petty feuds that has ever been recorded in paleontology. And Marsh described many fossils from North America. But yeah, he's probably most famous for his feud with another paleontologist, Edward Drinker Cope. Basically, these two guys just loved trying to one-up each other. I won't go into all of the details, but both of them had crews of men running around and collecting fossils for them. And there was sabotage, bribery, backstabbing, theft. And there's rumor of a dig site being destroyed with dynamite to prevent the other crew from scavenging and accessing it. Like, it's absolutely crazy. And I'm not condoning, like, what either of them did. It was super sketchy at times, and the quality of the science wasn't always great. But Marsh not only named Pteranodon, but some other famous faces from the Mesozoic, including Stegosaurus, Allosaurus, Triceratops, Apatosaurus, Brontosaurus, and Diplodocus. Like, what a list of greatest hits. Seriously. Imagine the citations. Like, that would be absolutely nuts. I'm only slightly jealous. In addition to, you know, all those amazing, like, legacy dinosaurs, basically household names in terms of dinosaurs and paleontology in general, Marsh also published 1,400 scientific publications during his career. Wow. And he was the first Western scientist outside of Europe to describe a pterosaur fossil. I was going to say, I wonder what it would have been like to discover the first pterosaur and be like wait was this a ginormous flying reptile question mark <laughs> okay so it's interesting that you bring that up because when western scientists first found pterosaurs they were super confused 
because they were in marine sediments, they were, you know, surrounded by fish and all these things. And it actually took like a long, a little while for them to, you know, first find the thing and to then connect the dots and realize that it was a flying animal. What had they found? Like just the wing bones? No, I think they found like a full skeleton. Oh wow! But still, they were yeah. Just that would have like, been confusing. <laughs> what What is this demon penguin doing at the bottom of the ocean? <laughs> but yeah, okay. So let's get into the discovery of Pteranodon. So if you actually look at that first paper, it doesn't have the name Pteranodon. It was first described and given the name Pterodactylus owenii in 1871, and that was supposed to be in honor of the famous naturalist Sir Richard Owen, but unfortunately that name was already taken up by another pterosaur that had already been described from Europe. So just remember, and don't like, don't be too mean for paleontologists back then for not knowing, because remember, <laughs> like without Google and the internet, it was hard for scientists to like have a database and stay up to date with everything and keep track of which names had already been used up. So this happened like a bunch back in the day. So yeah, Pteranodon was named by Marsh. His first go was Pterodactylus oni. And then upon realizing that it was preoccupied and taken up by another organism, he went back and tried to fix this. And he renamed his newly discovered American pterosaur Pterodactylus occidentalis. That name translates to Western Wing Finger. And yeah, during the early days of pterosaur research, like everything was just dumped into this genus Pterodactylus, which was first described by Cosimo Alessandro Collini in 1784. So you asked before, you know, what is the early history of pterosaur research like? Well, like some of the first pterosaurs, they were described from the latest stage of the Jurassic, so the upper Jurassic from Europe. And yeah. It's funny to me because Pterodactylus is almost twice as old as Pteranodon. So there's 60 million years of evolution that separates OG Pterodactylus from Europe and Pteranodon. But at this time, paleontologists had never seen animals like this before. They recognized that they were more similar to each other than anything else in the animal kingdom, alive or dead. But yeah. They also had just no way of knowing how many different species would be discovered in the years that followed, and I don't think they really got a solid concept of just how much time was separating these two species. I should also point out that Collini, he recognized that Pterodactylus was a vertebrate, but I think it was Sophia, you asked this before. It was 17 years later in 1801 when a different scientist, George Cuvier, suggested that these were flying creatures and gave it the name pterodactyl, which means wing finger. Cuvier, by the way, is a super problematic scientist. He was incredibly racist and he tried to use his position in the scientific community to justify that. And we don't condone that here. That's all I'm going to say on that. But yeah, Marsh, if you look back through, you know, Pteranodon, Pteranodon is synonymous with Marsh. And he's credited with naming the pterosaur that we all recognize as Pteranodon today. But yeah, if you find a PDF of that original paper, they have different names. So Marsh named them Pterodactylus ingens and Pterodactylus occidentalis. 
Here's the kicker, though. Marsh's paper was published just five days before his rival Cope published on his pterosaurs, also from the Niobrara chalk. And again, these two hated each other, and they just <laughs> almost seemed to live for the drama. So as you can imagine, Cope was furious to have been, like, pipped to the post. And I think for several years, he just kind of... He was trying to say, like, no, I named them first, but eventually he conceded that, okay, yes, Marsh named them before I did, and then in the scientific community whatever is named first or whatever name is given first, that is given priority. And then anything that's named afterwards, it gets synonymized. So it ends up getting that first name given. And then I think he eventually like years later back down, but then even in doing so, he was still just like, well, mine's bigger. And because mine is so much bigger, it's still a different species. And it's just like, oh, oh my God, just because yours is bigger does not mean it's a different species. I hate when scientists do this. So annoying. But yes, getting back to size, though, the new new American pterosaurs were really different compared to the pterosaurs that had previously been described from Germany and England up until this point. Because they were absolutely huge. So the early European pterosaurs that had been found had wingspans up to a meter, which is like three feet and five inches. But as we talked about at the start of the episode, Pteranodon has a bigger wingspan, max seven meters or 23 feet. On average, they do tend to be like a little bit smaller than that, but still like more than twice as big as the European stuff. And again, 60 million years of evolution separating them, so kind of makes sense. And what was also weird about Pteranodon compared to the stuff in Germany and England is that this was the first edentulous pterosaur. So up until this point, all the other pterosaurs that had been described had these spike-shaped teeth, but Pteranodon has a long slender rostrum which to me just kind of looks a bit like a crane or a stork, especially if you've seen their skeletons. Yeah, could we talk a bit about that? Because that that makes me wonder, I guess, what they were eating. Yeah. So in terms of what Pteranodon ate, there's actual direct evidence that it ate fish. So one specimen preserves fish bones in the thoracic section of that skeleton of Pteranodon, and fish scales and vertebrae have been found near the midsection of some other specimens. And there's actually one specimen that preserves, in its lower jaw section, minced up remains of a fossil fish. So yeah, it seems that Pteranodon was indeed sort of hunting for fish in this ancient ocean environment. I know with a different group of pterosaurs with a beak, an edentulous jaw, They've tried to do like aerodynamic models to see whether they can skim feed the way some birds do. And I think in that species, it just didn't work. It led to catastrophic failure, which in physics it just means it just breaks. It broke. Essentially. Yeah, it broke. Yeah. So it's, you know, maybe even more likely that Pteranodon was entering the water and then sort of like diving through, but. I mean, again, would love to see it. Would love to hop back in that DeLorean and have my notebook out and a camera and just document all this amazing behavior. And then on the flip side of the coin, 
In terms of what ate pteranodon, there's reports of pterosaur bones preserved in the stomach of a plesiosaur, and that was published by Barnum Brown in 1904. I don't think we know for certain whether that pterosaur was hunted by that plesiosaur or if it was just scavenged and it happened to come across it. But yeah, it's interesting to note that pteranodon was part of a food web rather than, you know, being at the top of the chain or whatever. Yeah, especially in those old oceans where everything was huge. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the ocean, the ocean is still kind of like a scary place now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> especially now with these orcas attacking all these boats. <laughs> oh my gosh. Like orcas are just too smart for their own good. It's the revolution. <laughs> it's happening. They have nothing to lose but their chains. Is there anything else that we know about the pteranodon ecology or, or their lifestyle or behavior? Ooh, ecology and behavior, not so much, but I did forget to mention like a really iconic thing about their skeleton and it's actually their skull. So another thing that really set pteranodon apart from other pterosaurs that had been known in the 19th century was that it has a crest at the back of its skull. I'm going to try and paint a word picture because podcasts are, are difficult. If you're not familiar with what Pteranodon looks like, on the back part of its head, like behind its eyes and I guess above the brain case, this pterosaur has a crest or like a piece of bone sticking out of its skull. And that shape actually changes depending on the age of the individual and whether it was male or female. There you go. I did answer your question about ecology a little bit. <laughs> so sometimes that crest is like really small and subtle. And then other times it, it looks like a pterosaur unicorn with a big cone shape sticking off the back of its head. It's like it has an inbuilt party hat. It's pretty funny. Now, it used to be thought that different shaped head crests define different species and helped with species recognition. It's kind of true to a point, but it's more like a spectrum of crest shapes that all fit within one species, or I should say the one genus. So yeah, pteranodon can get up to 23 feet, but on average, they tend to be a little bit smaller. What are interpreted as fully grown males tend to be a little bit bigger. So they typically have wingspans of like 5.6 meters, which is 18 feet. Whereas females are a little bit smaller. They average like 3.8 meter wingspans or 12 and a half feet. Another really interesting thing about what are interpreted as females are that not only do they have smaller wingspans and smaller crests on their skull, but they actually also appear to have a slightly wider set pelvis, which to me is interesting because I think of those sorts of things like a wide pelvis in terms of mammals. But to me, it's, I don't know, I just don't really think about it as much in groups of animals that laid eggs. Another thing that sets pterosaurs apart from birds in particular is that modern day birds, they have one functional oviduct. So they have one oviduct that makes eggs and that's it. And yeah, normally they're sort of capped at how many eggs they can push out in a day. Pterosaurs, based on a couple of great fossils from China specifically, it's been demonstrated that in at least one species of pterosaur, they had two functional oviducts. So both the left and the right were able to pop out eggs. But yeah, it's interesting to think that um, even in animals that lay eggs, they have this sort of 
these changes in the body going on that sort of like fit in with their ecology and their life history and that we can see that from the fossil record too. That's that's amazing. Two oviducts. Is there anything like that in the animal kingdom now that we see in any groups? I have no idea what bats do. (laughs) (laughs) I have no idea what bats do. Yeah, I'm not sure. Hmm. Yeah, I feel like I haven't heard of it, but I mean... Yeah, that's so interesting because having like a wider set pelvis and then kind of two like egg containing producing things. It's like, oh, that sounds quite mammalian vibes. It sounds super mammalian. Like I remember I'm not like a true crime person now, but my mum used to love watching like all these TV shows when I was like 10 or so. And I just remember this one example. They identified the remains of a woman And um, I think it's after, like, two pregnancies, the female pelvis, like, widens after two pregnancies, like, the morphology changes. And I think they were able to identify a victim based on that change in her pelvis. I think that's why I find the pterosaur thing so wild, like, the wider set pelvis, because it just reminds me of that one episode of this, like, crime show. (laughs) The pterosaur victim. (laughs) Murdered by a plesiosaur, potentially. Or Tyrannosaurus, who knows? Suspect number one. (laughs) It's so neat when you find, like, you know, fossil remains inside another animal. I think that is such a cool example of when you can see these ecological interactions in animals that are unbelievably old. And I get really excited about it. Yeah, it's just like this awesome reminder that they were living, breathing animals. Yeah. And like there were food chains. and Yes. They didn't just exist in a vacuum. They were interacting with one another in all these interesting ways that we get these little glimpses of from the fossil record. But we'll never get the full picture. But it's still so exciting when you get a little window into that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can see the whole story playing out. Are there multiple species of pteranodon like within that genus or is it just the one? Yeah, so as I mentioned before, who was it? Cope was adamant that he had like a different species to Marsh. And if you look back through how many different species they thought there were, it's kind of a mess. Fortunately, it has since been tidied up. So in 2001, a pterosaur paleontologist called Christopher Bennett published on Pteranodon, and get this, he examined 1,100 specimens of Pteranodon. This is an incredibly well-known fossil. And yeah, we basically know what every single bone in this pterosaur's body looks like, but these specimens... They're not always like three-dimensionally preserved either because they're in an ocean environment. So these bones were also hollow, which is an adaptation that allowed pterosaurs to fly. When you have meters and meters of ocean plus mud getting dumped on top of you, your bones are going to take a bit of a hammering. But yes, what Bennett did was amazing going through all these different specimens. Bennett is actually the paleontologist that proposed that the, the crest on the skull of Pteranodon is related to ontogeny, which is like the age of the individual. It's kind of like a puberty marker thing and male-female dimorphism as well, sexual dimorphism. And yeah, 
He also tidied up a bunch of, like, the nomenclature, the taxonomy of Pteranodon. So even earlier than 2001, in 1994, Bennett had proposed that five species of Pteranodon were nomen dubia. And that is a Latin word for, like, dubious name, I'm pretty sure, something like that. Like they aren't sure whether they've correctly named it and it's just kind of sketchy and it's like just not it's just not super like we're not sure this is a species yeah 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 okay we we're not sure that this is unique enough to define its whole new different species so yeah when a scientist does this it's normally because the material isn't great to work with or the description doesn't really hold up to modern day standards it might be a matter of they say this is a new species because of this special feature but then later on it's shown that that feature is actually widespread in a bunch of different species that can happen and then sometimes also the holotype specimen can get lost (laughs) which is not great (laughs) oh but yeah bennett is awesome so he tidied up the taxonomy for the species and at the moment we just think there are two species within the genus Pteranodon. They're both from the Niobrara chalk. And interestingly, they don't overlap with each other in terms of the different aged rocks within this big geologic formation. Because again, it kind of spans like five, almost six million years of evolution. So we've got Pteranodon sternbergi, which was originally called Geosternbergia, So it's given its own separate genus. We now think it's this genus. Again, taxonomic priority. Pteranodon was first. It holds the name. Sorry if this is getting really confusing. So Pteranodon Sternbergi is slightly older. And then we've got Pteranodon Longiceps, which is from like the youngest, like the top layer of the Niobrara chalk. And what we think is going on here is that these represent a chrono species where one species directly evolves into another. Another term you might see for the same thing is anagenesis, but, but basically they're the same thing. So in the case of Pteranodon, this genus possibly lasted for about 4 million years. They're very similar overall, which is again kind of what you'd expect, since, yeah, they're they're not adapting to anything different. They're both still living around the... Western Interior Seaway, hunting for fish. And when you start at one point, there's only so many different things you can do. But yeah, two different species. If you see other species around, they've been cancelled. <laughs> <laughs> Going back to what you said about Bennett finding over a thousand specimens of Pteranodon. Ooh, yeah, so he oh. had over a thousand specimens to work with. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I just want to highlight that he didn't go out and collect a thousand specimens. So I think, what was it? In 1910, George Eden from the Yale Peabody Museum, by 1910, they had pterosaur bones from 465 different individuals. So even, you know, a hundred years ago, they still had close to 500 different individuals represented in their collections. And that's just at one institution as well. There would have been others. From what I've heard, pterosaurs in general don't preserve well. And is that the case? Like, what about this chalk formation made it so that we have such good preservation of this animal? 
Yeah, so you are right. Like pterosaurs are pretty rare in the fossil record because their bones are hollow. It's same like birds. We see birds like everywhere around us today, but bird bones in the fossil record are also pretty rare because it's not just because, you know, they're small. It's because the wall of the bone, the outer layer is quite thin. It's quite delicate. And then it's hollow in the inside. It gets broken very easily. Yeah, certainly pterosaurs that I've worked on, it's like, oh my God, we have one specimen. Isn't this amazing? And yeah, it is kind of to do with this chalk formation representing a massive inland sea. So the best conditions for fossilization are an anoxic environment. So an environment with very little oxygen and to get buried very quickly by sediment. Oceans have that down pat. They're great for it. Of course, you can still get scavenging, you know, whale carcasses, this crazy stuff that happens with whale carcasses and stuff like that. But yeah, the bottom of an ocean, even just not having a lot of oxygen, it actually stops like bacteria and microbes and other things from sort of breaking down carcasses. And the less of that you have going on, the better chance you have of a fossil, you know, making it millions and millions of years into the fossil record. And I think part of the reason as well is the Western Interior Seaway covers a massive area in terms of like geography. It's quite extensive. And then it happens to be in a country where paleontology has been going on for quite some time as well. And people have sort of been interested in going out and doing these studies and stuff. Whereas in other places around the world, there may not be the resources or the interest, I guess, behind studying these ancient animals. And then, yeah, I mean, bone wars and stuff. Like you have people today that go out and collect fossils and they may not be scientists themselves, but they might be interested in selling them too. So you have that going on. Definitely. Very interesting. Yeah. Thank you so much for all of this amazing information about Pteranodon. But before we let you go, we definitely wanted to ask you about the pterosaur that you named because that's just so cool. I feel like we have a celebrity on the show. <laughs> yeah. So I started doing my PhD in late 2017 because this really cool pterosaur fossil was found and I got to name it as a new species and genus in 2019. It's still currently the most complete pterosaur that's ever been found in Australia. We have, oh, it's like fewer than 20 pterosaur fossils, but this one is 10% complete. So it's got like part of the skull. We found a bunch of teeth as well. I think we found 40 teeth that had busted out of the jaws and then the jaws themselves still had some of their teeth in place which was really cool wing bones as well a couple from the right most of them are from the left because we were able to study the wing bones from the left wing we were able to give a wingspan estimate so we think this pterosaur had a wingspan of four meters so not massive but still like as big as some of the biggest bird species that are alive today and yeah, I named it Ferradraco lentini, and that name means Lenten's Iron Dragon. I just thought it was really cool because the bones, you have these like patches of white, like if you saw roadkill, the bones bleach and turn white because that's the calcium in the bones responding to the sun. And we had that a little bit with Ferradraco, but 
for the most part, those bones are covered in this iron rich kind of rusty rock and it gives them this incredible weight as well. So the bones would have been hollow when that animal was alive, but when I handle and pick them up, they're quite easy to hold and handle and I'm not too worried about breaking them because they feel quite solid because of this ironstone rock. So that's why I wanted to call it the Iron Dragon. And it's also named in honor of a person, Graham Thomas Lenton, Butch Lenton. And he passed away the same year that Butch was found. So we wanted to honor all his contributions to our area and the museum as well. He was a great supporter. So it was really nice to be able to do that. And yeah, for that reason, we also give Fur Draco the nickname Butch for Butch Lenton. So yeah, it's been amazing to be able to work on that specimen and go to that museum and see it on display. I know that, you know, thousands of people have seen it. That's really special to me. And that's why I love working with regional museums a lot because a lot of their stuff, they just put it straight out on display. It doesn't make sense to them being, you know, a smaller organization to make a whole bunch of replicas when they have incredible fossils that they take great care of. And yeah, they just get to show off the real thing. So it's a career highlight for me, definitely. But yeah, I'm trying to work on finding like other amazing pterosaurs in Australia because yeah, I'm still going with my PhD and who knows like what else we'll find. I really hope that we will find pterosaurs like Pteranodon and Quetzalcoatlus in Australia. Maybe not necessarily those species, because that would be kind of weird, but just like more big edentulous, like beaked pterosaurs. I would love to see more of them, but we need to dig in more of the right age rocks. So that'd be so cool. Really? And like amazing naming. That is the coolest name. Oh, thank you. 10 out of 10. (laughs) My Excel spreadsheet paid off. (laughs) <laughs> I would just have like, well, what will I name this? Or like, what are some of the words that people use when naming a pterosaur? And like, what different combinations can I use that haven't been taken up before? Because I meant uh, we touched on like Pterodactylus Owenai. Great name, honoring Sir Richard Owen, who was obviously doing a bunch of work and like a leader in his field, a name that we still recognize today. But damn, someone else had that idea for a great name, and now you have to pick a different one. <laughs> it's a lot of pressure. It's Oh, for sure. Uh, and, like, another layer of knowing it was going to be on public display at the Australian Age of Dinosaurs, I wanted it to be easy for guides, the tour guides, to say, and I also wanted it to be, like, relatively easy for kids to remember and say as well. So mm-hmm. That's a good idea. Like, to think about those things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, at one point, uh, someone on our team was like, oh, maybe we'll call it Voluca Lanius. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, it sounds absolutely cool. not. I, can't, <laughs> I cannot. I don't have time for this. No. And it was like, it was, also, you it was trying to be, be really writing clever. Writing the word over and over. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah. No. Ugh. Unless you come up In with your like, a thesis keyboard shortcut. Over and over. Yeah. <laughs> Just like every time I write this, find and replace yeah. <laughs> your little like acronym or whatever, you could do that. But yeah, no, I'm happy with Fur Draco. And it was like really well received as well. Um, it was really cool to see like different 
media outlets and news organizations from not just Australia, but like all around the place, like just froth over this iron dragon from Australia. I'm just, yeah, it makes me really proud because Australian paleontology doesn't always have like the greatest reputation. And like, I get it. Some of our species are named off of like just one bone or one partial bone. (laughs) So it's really nice to be able to like name something. It's like, look, there's more than one bone. Isn't this amazing? Yeah, that's exciting. And like, I think something interesting about paleontology is when something's found, it's very like, there's a lot of pride within a community to find something like that. And and we sort of say like, we found this as like a collective, like it's sort of something for like, you know, a whole region a whole country to be really excited about collectively especially dinosaurs it's very like you know everyone can get with dinosaurs they're not yeah I don't know it's just it's really sweet to me how like excited everyone gets about these discoveries yeah and like voting for state fossils too like those kind of campaigns it's really nice you know people feeling like their voice matters and it's great to sort of not only be represented by just the one fossil, but often like we in Queensland in the state that I live in, we had our state fossil picked like not that long ago. So it's kind of the process is fresh in my mind, but it was just so great seeing like all the different candidates and, you know, realizing just how many amazing fossils have come from the area. Like you said, Yeah, well, you should be really proud. And I'm so glad we could have you back on, especially to talk about something that you know so much about and have really devoted your career so far to. So yeah, it's just, it's great to have you back. Oh, it's great to be back. And yeah, thank you so much for having me on. Obviously, I loved talking about Amber because it was one of the first things I got to do research-wise. But yeah, I feel like Most people nowadays definitely associate me with pterosaurs and it was, yeah, just so great to be able to talk about Pteranodon, which I think in game is called like just Terra. It's like Terra body, Terra left wing, Terra right wing. Yeah. But again, (laughs) just, just like the most iconic pterosaur. Like I'm pretty sure it's in, I think it made it into like the first Jurassic Park. I think in the book they were going to have a different pterosaur, but then they put in pteranodon and most times if you see a pterosaur in popular media i mean prehistoric planet is obviously shining light on some like other amazing weirdos within the flying reptile group but yeah for a long time i just feel like pteranodon pteranodon is like the t-rex equivalent of the pterosaur world you know what i mean like it's the one yeah it's funny how like like if you hear pterodactyl because i hear People usually see pterodactyl, but they're like thinking, yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. But I mean, like that amazing crest, it's it really stands out in your mind as this very prominent image. Yeah, I feel like because it was discovered so early on in pterosaur research as well, it's kind of like iguanodon in that respect. You know, like being one of the earliest named members of its group. I think it just has, I don't know, there's like a soft spot that people have for it or it has just a certain level of fame. Fame's not the right word, but I think you kind of get what I mean. Yeah, status. But yeah, it was a historical figure in and of itself. Also just being part of like the Bone Wars as well. Because I've I've 
heard about the Bone Wars, I didn't realize that um, Pteranodon was part of that whole big mess. And, you know, to have some, to have your competitor publish on stuff you were going to write about just five days before, like, that's absolutely wild. <laughs> but again, I'm, I'm kind of here for it. I don't know. But like, <laughs> yeah, we are too. <laughs> oh my gosh. I feel like it because it's Copen Marsh. It's a great story, but I feel like because it's Copen Marsh, you know, they've both passed away. <laughs> yeah. It's like, like a drama I can enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. And but also just, you know, learn from it and just be like, don't be like that, you know. If you can, collaborate. <laughs> they oh, they would have achieved so much if they had joined forces. But um oh, I think the story is that like they were kind of on friendly terms and then one of them pointed out to the other one, oh, you put the you put the head on the tail end. And then the other yeah. one was just like, <laughs> you are my sworn enemy. You're I okay. hate you forever. You're dead to me. <laughs> You're dead to me. <laughs> yeah. Like, I think I heard that before. <laughs> yeah, I think we've talked about that. It's, it is, it's, I feel like this is the story that just keeps on giving. Like as someone who's outside of paleo, but then like, get to come on and listen to Olivia's stories about discoveries it's just these guys keep coming up this story they're keeps coming like up. in every episode yeah <laughs> to talk about them because yeah they did discover so much I mean I mm-hmm. think their collaboration would have been incredible if they had decided to do that but also I think them being driven so aggressively by spite was quite a mm-hmm. powerful force spite True. spite is an excellent motivator if collaboration is like solar power where am I going with this? If col- if collaboration is solar power, spite is like coal power. <laughs> it it can still be used as energy and motivation, but it's also bad. <laughs> no. Mm. Yeah. Well, I feel like we could talk about this forever, but I want to make sure you get to plug where our listeners can find you and the podcast and your shop and everything. Yes, so I'm Chaotic. I have three Instagram accounts now. I'm probably most active on the Pals in Paleo one for the podcast. So that is Pals in Paleo. Paleo is spelt P-A-L-A-E-O. I also, if you can hear some weird noises, it's my parrot just singing (laughs) to himself. Yeah, it's fine. Oh, squawk. Otherwise, I'm also Paleo Dell on Instagram, Paleo spelled P-A-L-A-E-O-D-E-L. And the shop is Strange Magic Shop, all one word. I haven't been super active on it because, yeah, trying to finish off my PhD and also deciding I don't have enough time slash really want to do more science communication and starting a podcast means that something has sort of slipped by the wayside. I would like to do some, like, new designs but honestly, by the time they sort of get done, it'll probably almost be Christmas time. So, but yeah, also I'm on Twitter at Adele Pentland. It's just my name. I'm not super active on Twitter. I only found out how to use the message function the other day. I'm really behind, but I don't think it matters anymore <laughs> because people don't really like Twitter. But yeah, if I have a new paper, I'll normally post it on Twitter and then I'll just post and ghost. So find me on Instagram. I'm most active there. I feel that. Amazing. Well, thank you again so much for for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a delight to be able to talk about pterosaurs. They are my favorite. Extinct animals, definitely. Pteranodon is just 
iconic and also there's so much drama behind the scenes it was wonderful to be able to look into all the facts and details yeah and thanks everyone so much for listening remember to check out our patreon at patreon.com beyond blathers and follow us on instagram and twitter at beyond blathers you can also find our tiktok at beyond underscore blathers tune in next week to learn more about the insects fish and fossils you can find in animal crossing new horizons bye 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 Thank you.